You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Carl Davis, welcome. We're so excited to have you with us today. We've known each other for over a decade now, and I've heard you give several wonderful presentations at Montana Archaeology Society meetings. So we are grateful to have you here with us, um, virtually anyway. Crystal and I are here at the Extreme History Headquarters in downtown Bozeman, and Carl is talking with us via Zoom from Missoula, Montana. Today, we're going to discuss Carl's book, 600 Generations, an Archaeological History of Montana. Welcome, Carl. It's so good to see you over Zoom anyway. I'm so excited as well about our conversation today. But before we dive in, I want to give everyone out there some information on your significant background. You grew up in Dillon, Montana, and received a bachelor's degree in anthropology from the University of Montana, and then a master's degree in anthropology from the University of Pittsburgh. In 1978, you started a long career with the Forest Service, working in Oregon and Montana for 35 years. During this time, you were involved in several law enforcement cases where illegal looting of archaeological sites finally saw their day in court. Woohoo! That's Yay. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I love to see that. You also work closely with local schools to document sites and then get them on the National Register, which is also amazing and wonderful. You have quite a few enduring legacies from your work. One of them, I'll talk to just a couple of them here, one of them is the Heritage Stewardship Enhancement Program, where you would set funds aside each year for archaeological projects. This revolutionized the way heritage work gets done by the Forest Service. So congratulations on that. Woo-hoo. Yeah. Woo-hoo. <laughs> um, always needing more funds for those heritage projects, for sure. Another legacy is the Historic Preservation Roadshow here in Montana, which is a much-beloved biannual bus tour with the public that travels around the state featuring local historic preservation archaeological sites and historic places, often, often in rural parts of Montana. I still have not been able to make it on the roadshow, but one of these years I will. I'm looking forward to um, future roadshows. And, of course, Nancy and I met you through the Montana Archaeological Society many, many years ago, and your dedication and commitment to that organization is so appreciated. 
You retired from the Forest Service in 2015, but continue to sit on many boards and continue to help promote history, historic preservation, and archaeology in Montana in many different ways. In 2018, you received the Montana Heritage Keeper Award from the Montana Historical Society Board of Trustees. And I have to add that Extreme History won that prestigious award the next year in 2019. So we're all heritage keepers around this table today, which is exciting. (laughs) In 2019, um, and and, uh, you currently reside in Missoula, Montana, with your partner, Sarah Scott, who is a phenomenal archaeologist and advocate for all things historic as well. And Carl, you published the book we're going to talk about today, last year in 2019. So we're we're so excited to have you here and excited to visit with you a little bit. Carl, before we discuss your book, I want to start by going back to the beginning of your career. You began studying anthropology and archaeology in college in the 1970s which was quite an exciting time for the discipline. I was thinking back and looking back at what things were happening. One of the first things that had popped into my mind was the discovery of Lucy, the Australopithecine that really changed some of what we understand about human evolution. Don Johansson, of course. Um, Noam Chomsky was still coming out with amazing research on linguistics and universal grammar. Uh, in cultural anthropology, there was a lot of focus on hunter-gatherer research, Marshall Sollins published Stone Age Economics, and archaeology itself was becoming a bit more scientific using statistics. Um, And in terms of North American archaeology, the idea that Clovis peoples, these, these very large projectile points that people are very familiar with, were the first people in the Americas and came across the Bering Land Bridge. And that story has, has changed somewhat since then. So um, I wonder if you can remember what drew you to anthropology and, um, and also what did your parents think about you choosing that as a major? Well, First off, thanks for that gracious introduction, um, and congratulations to Extreme History. You guys do wonderful work, and I think this podcast is, you know, part and parcel of a wide range of things you do. And I hope people get on the website and take a look at all the programs you offer. So, really, thanks so much for including me today. This is a, an honor to be here. Um, Yeah, I've always been interested, one of those stories since a child in um, archaeology, cultural geography, um, it's just kind of one of those things that I always did. My mom um, grew up partially on the Navajo Indian Reservation, her father worked for the Indian Service, and so I was exposed that way, I think, to indigenous culture, kind of in a a different sort of way. so I think that that led to an interest that uh, wasn't really satiated when I went to high school or grade school. I had a few really nice teachers that helped explain some things, but it really wasn't until I went to college and took a class in North American Indians that I actually um, landed on where I really wanted to be. And it was fortunate uh, in the early 90s to um, be part of the anthropology program, because as you said, Nancy, a lot was going on, not just in the world of anthropology, but certainly in the world of politics and culture, not unlike 
what is actually going on today. It was a pretty tumultuous time with Vietnam, mm. uh, civil rights and all those kinds of things. But of course, out of that emerged the National Historic Preservation Act, uh, the National Environmental Policy Act, and things like that, which actually created viable jobs for archaeologists for the first time. That's right. And, that was uh, an important... I was fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that I wouldn't have had a career that I've had with, without that. And it was kind of a moment in time that uh, many of us were fortunate to be able to get federal jobs, get university jobs, and so on. And, of course, the field of contract archaeology just absolutely blossomed. So... Um, when I told my folks that I was going to be an archaeologist, um, I think they always knew that this was somehow the direction I might head. But they also said, how are you going to make any money? <laughs> That's always the question, it. isn't it? It's, <laughs> it's still the question for students at MSU. <laughs> but I was in good company because my sister got a Latin and history degree. Oh. And my brother got a religious studies degree. My <laughs> sister Alice made the only sensible choice got a degree in physical anthropology. So a long way yeah. of saying, I think I was sort of destined to do what I have done, but I was really fortunate to be, um, you know, part of a huge cultural change in um, the Americas relative to historic preservation. Yeah, so it sounds like you come from a family of anthropologists and historians in all sorts of interesting ways. And that that decade, um, mid 1960s to late 1970s around there, it, it really changed the field, especially of archaeology here in North America, because of those laws passed to preserve historic and archaeological sites. So it must have been, in my mind, it sounds like a very exciting time uh, to have been getting into the field and certainly new jobs being created. Um, so I wanted to, before we move on to your book, just ask you quickly what your thesis was about for your master's thesis at Pittsburgh. Well, it was on it was a coal land survey and a and a really basic predictive model in southeastern Montana. Of course, about the same time that I was going to undergraduate school, Colstrup was was the hearings were going on and oil and gas development were flourishing. So the BLM hired people through contract to go out and do reconnaissance surveys. So as a graduate of the University of Montana, I was sent out to the wilds of eastern Montana in different spots to do these sample surveys and then see if we could help the BLM and as they develop coal, you know, figure out where the sites would be or not. It's a pretty basic thesis, but uh, maybe most <laughs> theses are kind of basic, but mine was really basic, so... Yeah. But you had the data and then you, you know, maybe you were always planning on coming back to do archaeology in Montana, even though you left for a graduate degree. Yeah. In fact, my love for Montana kind of interrupted my graduate program. It's something that I sort of regret. I probably wish I had stuck it out a little longer at Pittsburgh, but uh, that's not the way events unfolded. While I was at Pitt, Pittsburgh, I got to work on one of the old pre-Clovis sites called Meadowcroft Rock Shelter. Oh, wow. And so that was really foundational to, you know, understanding about excavation. It was very, very intense. And the day that the early point was found in the so-called deep hole, you know, I was right there. So oh, my gosh. I kind of wow. watched it all unfold. So, but 
it was a very intense environment, very academically um, competitive, and there were lots of people that were getting into the game then. And uh, that was a little too much for me. And after being in the Badlands of southeastern Montana, I just had to return. That's sort of the long and short story. Uh, that's great. Well, that I don't blame great. you. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to pause for a quick station break. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past, hosted by myself, Nancy Mahoney, with co-host Crystal Alegria. We are talking today with Carl Davis about his book, 600 Generations, an Archaeological History of Montana. All right, Carl. So we want to dive into your book now and talk a little bit about that. And I guess the first question we have is, why did you call it 600 Generations? Where did that title come from? Well... You know, Montanans um, frequently talk about being a third or fourth generation resident in our state, and it's a source of identification and pride. And so I thought, you know, that resonates with people. So I would so show how many generations Indigenous peoples have lived here. And I think that that notion was something that people could really understand and relate to. I also wanted to use the concept of generation to get it that people, men, women, and children. And I thought the generational aspect of that would invoke something that was a little more personable and relatable than hunters and gatherers of Montana, whatever, because <laughs> it's really easy to fall into that academic jargon. So I wanted to try and find something that diverted and in fact, the book cover really emphasizes the generational aspect by the, the woman and the child, which was a very deliberate um, uh, approach by me and the artist who illustrated the book. Yeah. So beautiful. I think it's worked. Yeah, beautiful illustrations throughout the book Yeah. by Eric Carlson as well. So Carl, I have used this book twice in two semesters when I teach an introductory anthropology course at MSU particularly for the archaeology section of the course. And I found that it really fills what I saw was a, a gap in the literature on Montana archaeology, both because the organization of the book and the narrative voice you chose. And you, you just alluded to this now in discussing why you chose the title of Generations, avoiding some jargon, focusing on people. So I want to ask you a little bit more about that narrative voice and also when you started working on the book, who was your intended audience? Did you imagine a particular group of people as your reader, and did that somehow shape the choices you made in this text? Yeah, you know, I've thought about this book for a really long time. When you're out surveying and doing excavation work or whatever, you have a lot of time to think about other things because a lot of work can be a little bit tedious and boring. But it really was, uh, I think that what I wanted to do was to try and reach an audience that seemed to really appreciate prehistory, indigenous history, archaeology. I'd have some basic uh, knowledge of it, but didn't really get the big picture. And those people were the people that would come to presentations and uh, talks and guided hikes, very same people I know that your program draws. And uh, 
those people that had some intrinsic interest in the discipline in the first place, but needed some, some, some help along the way, I would give talks about rock art or an excavation project or whatever. And on one hand, you could see in the audience that people got that particular subject matter they could understand, but there were a lot of blank stares as to the larger context. Well, how did people get here? How did people evolve to the point that they could actually create this art? And it became abundantly apparent that they needed some kind of a narrative out there that tied things together. Um, I think archaeology can be really dumbed down. You know, Indians camp by the river and ate there, and that passes as interpretation of native cultures in the past. And I really feel strongly that that's inappropriate, except at the most basic levels when you're reaching out to young school kids and so on. So my target audience was really not the very, very beginner. It wasn't somebody like yourselves that really knows as much as I know about this, but those people right in the middle that have busy lives but love archaeology and are very curious about I also say it was me because when I was in a youngster and I went to Mesa Verde and I immediately walked in after I saw the ruins and bought a book about archaeology. And it was A.V. Kidder's book about mm. the prehistoric pottery and stuff, which was way over my head, but I could proudly carry it out in the car <laughs> and pretend like I understood what they were talking about. And so I think I saw a little bit of myself when I wrote the book and wanted to appeal to that curiosity that I had always had, but was largely let un was unmet until I reached college and graduate school. Uh, Mesa Verde, I always tell my students, is the Disneyland of archaeology. It's such a phenomenal <laughs> place. Even if you yes. don't think you like archaeology, you're going to have a blast there. Um, and I think that's what I really have appreciated about this book, Carl, is that you it's not steeped in jargon, but it is not dumbed down. Um, I worry always that archaeologists get so technical and narrow-focused when they're doing the scientific part of their job that they don't pause to figure out how to tell that larger narrative story that often historians can be much better at. And I think you really achieve that in this book. So it's been very successful with um, introductory anthropology college courses, which I think is, is that similar target audience you were saying. So, so goal achieved from my perspective. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, Mesa Verde. Yeah. I mean, that's just a, a magical place. And when I was 10 years old, my mom and dad took me there on a family trip. And that, along with, you know, the fascination with King Tut and Raiders of the Lost Ark is what got me involved in in archaeology, for sure. So um, walking up those steps on the ladders and, you know, all that is just pretty amazing. So... So, Carl, you start the book by laying out some groundwork, specifically some background information on the geological and indigenous landscape of Montana, going back in deep time. The first chapter is titled, Not One Story, But Many, kind of speaking to your 600 generations. In the second chapter, you speak about climate change in both the distant and very recent past, 
which we'll discuss in a few minutes a little bit more in depth. It isn't until the third chapter you dive into the ways in which archaeologists actually learn about the past, the scientific methods. Why did you decide to start the book this way? You know, again, it was based on a lot of talks and presentations that I've given where, again, you, you get into the subject matter and all of a sudden you go, whoa, I have to back up. They don't really understand some of the basics. So I decided that I would sort of front load that information in a way that was sort of meaningful and that wouldn't interrupt the narratives had I included it later on in the narratives. So, you know, that was a deliberate decision on our part. And I had a technical editor um, and I also had the publisher editing the book. And I think that they felt that was important, too. Um, but I would have to say that, you know, for some people, it has been a turnoff. And I have been told so that, that you know, it's just too much information all at once hmm. and they'll put down the book. So, hmm. you know, I don't know that it's the perfect approach. It's the approach that we decided to take so that we could have a narrative, the site narratives, relatively free of the technical discussions about radiocarbon dating or pollen analysis or all those other things that uh, are sort of front loaded or particularly stone tool technologies and so on. Yeah, yeah. But, no, the editor really did cut down. I mean, there's a lot of information that we cut out or was cut out of the book because it was getting too long and too detailed. But for example, in the rock talk section, there's no mention of heat treatment, which is, of course, crucial to understanding flint napping and some of the things that we as archaeologists work on as archaeological problems. So a lot of, I think, good stuff got left on the editing room floor, as they say. Yeah. But the book by then was getting so busy and so thick that we had to just make it more concise and succinct. But still, as succinct as it is, I think it's a turnoff for some people, sadly. Mm. But that's the way it goes. Well, I think it's a very good introduction to deep history, to the deep history of Montana but also to climate and in the environment of this place we called home. So I'm glad you included it. Um, boy, it's too bad the heat treatment got left out, but oh well. <laughs> <laughs> but Carl, after those first three chapters, you then illustrate the deep history through, you, you illustrate this deep history through 15 different archaeological sites located throughout Montana. How did this idea come to you, and how did you determine which sites to write about? There's so many good ones. How did you narrow it to 15? Again, and I was wandering through the woods uh, <laughs> during my day job. You know, I had thought about this a lot in sites that seemed to sort of capture places and time and moments in time that would be interesting to um, to the average reader that had some background or enthusiasm for archaeology. So sites like the Anza Clovis site seem to be to be no brainers. Um, you know, I think Barton Gulch, which has got a lot about plant food processing, seemed to me a really important site. Um, but others were just sites that I thought were representative of time periods that I knew something about personally, mm -hmm. or particularly that I had access to data about. 
And in that regard, I was very lucky that the late Dr. Les Davis, um, I was able to use a lot of his published and unpublished material, you know, to illustrate and highlight uh, some sites. Um, but there were a lot of sites that were left out, which were really important and interesting to me. I think the Pilgrim site, the TP Ring site in yes. Townsend is one of the most interesting, one of the best archaeology projects in Montana that I've read about. Um, I would have loved to include Lost Terrace, which is an antelope procurement site that the archaeology that was done is absolutely marvelous. I didn't mention um, the Sun River site near Great Falls, which is a early to mid-Holocene bison processing site that I actually helped test way back in the day. <laughs> but it's published in American Antiquity, and mm -hmm. I didn't use that. And finally, Black Bear Cooley near Garrison, which is a really good stratified site um, uh, that deals with Western Montana archeology, span which outside of the Kootenai area, we really don't have a good hand one. Mm. And I've definitely been told by archeologists who's <laughs> either worked on those sites or- Oh, I bet. So I've taken a little heat for, <laughs> you know, that's to be expected. Oh, but, yes. Uh, you know, there's so much information out there. And the biggest thing is I tried to find a story to tell. And the Sun River site, for example, is a phenomenal site, terrifically well done. But, you know, there's only so much you can say about bison hunting and processing that interests the readers that I was trying to appeal to. So, you know, you can talk about bison all day long on archaeologists, but the general public gets a little bored. So I tried to use that as the, uh, um, you know, the, the measuring stick, the public interest and in what the story was to tell. And then my editors definitely, I work with them, Sarah, my partner in crime was probably my harshest critic about <laughs> the, the selection of sites, narratives and so on. But there are plenty of sites that remain to be written up in a popular narrative. And that's probably going to be left to somebody besides me. What were some of the challenges, Carl, you faced in trying to write up some of these sites? Because as you say, some sites have been published or they've been published in what we often call the gray literature contract reports. Others have not been fully written up. So what was this process like? And maybe maybe use one particular site as an example or a couple. Well, the first thing it required just a lot of digging of information and uh, a lot of archaeologists uh, such as Nancy uh, graciously um, got information that helped those narratives, I mean, in a big way. And so I owe a big round of thanks to a whole bunch of people. I couldn't possibly buy enough beers at the Montana Archaeological Society meetings to. Uh, oh, well, that's true of back. any, yeah, yeah, <laughs> archaeology <laughs> meetings. Maybe, maybe that was a bad ex way to We like that. our beer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think the biggest thing is that as you read the disparate pieces of information, is how accurate it is. And I've died and I continue to die a thousand deaths about the narratives that did I get it right? Did I get um, what people said right? ANZIC, not surprisingly, proved to be probably the biggest challenge. It's a very intriguing site. There's a lot of different ideas and information 
about the site. One example is, is are in fact the Clovis child and the bone and stone tools actually related? And there's a minority opinion that says we at least need to get that idea out there. Now, the majority opinion, of course, as you guys know, is that they were related in the ochre and so on, really helps tie that together. But I kind of died a thousand deaths trying to get that particular narrative right so that it wouldn't be criticized by all of too much by all the players that have been involved with that project. And Carl, I was just going to interject for uh, people listening that don't know about the Anzac site. So this is one of the oldest burials in North America. It's 10,000 years old, and there were... 12,600. Years old. Yeah. I thought that was BC. Okay, so 12,000 <laughs> years old. Thank you for the historian correcting the archaeologist. And um, there were there were two different sub-adults, young children buried. And then there was also an enormous, one of the largest caches of, of Clovis-era artifacts, which again, are some of the earliest artifacts we have in North America, found with red ochre, and it's all found on the property of the Anzic family. And this was before any laws were passed in the 1960s that protected. So there's a lot about this particular site that's fascinating because we don't have any burials from the Clovis period that have offerings in them other than this particular one. And it seems to be maybe associated with the child. But as you say, not everybody knows for sure or agrees that the artifacts are associated with uh, child burials. Just wondered if you could add a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah I mean, you've, you've really covered it well. I think the um, the point that I tried to make in the book that as archaeological data, people really need, as evidence, people really need to understand that because the material and the child were moved at a time before there were laws on private property, we don't have that direct association or not that you would discover in a bona fide archaeological excavation. So we can say probably with some knowledge that they're that they're probably related and associated, but just on pure empirical evidence alone, you really can't say that in the same way we can talk about other sites and places where the archaeology was done and was done with a great, great deal of precision. And that's not a knock against all those people that have been involved with the project. It's just really a reflection of the times and the evolution of archaeology and historic preservation in Montana. And the ANZICs are to be commended in multiple ways, including working with the Montana Historical Society to get some of those artifacts on display, which if you're ever in Helena, to your audience, you should definitely go by and check them out. It's an unbelievable display to see. I I often mention it to my students, and you can even see ochre on those artifacts there. And then just to let our listeners know, those remains have since been reburied, even though they weren't necessarily subject to NAGPRA or the Montana laws uh, governing preservation of burials. The Anzic family um, has worked with the Coalition of Tribes to honor that burial. 
Yeah, so there's a lot of fascinating things that you include in your narratives about the site. So we're not only talking about that historical prehistoric period in time, but you're you're trying to then also discuss for the reader varied or more difficult interpretations and why we can't say for sure empirically uh, if those remains are associated with the artifacts. So I think that's one particularly fascinating example, and, and I think you choose ways to balance that in the narrative very well. You also discuss in almost every chapter some aspect of reconstructing climate. So for the past 50 years at least, archaeologists have worked across disciplines with other scientists to collect and analyze data from archaeological sites. So we can reconstruct these ancient climates and know more about the environment and the ecosystems that the people that we're interested in understanding were living in. Most people think archaeologists just look for artifacts, you know, or burials or bones, but really we're uh, definitely dependent on an understanding of the environment and ecosystem to make any interpretations about the things we find. So I just wondered if you could sort of tell our listeners, what does the discipline of archaeology bring to even contemporary discussions on climate change, um, you know, for our region and, and then also more broadly, because archaeologists all over the world deal with these issues. You know, as I say in the book, and to quote the famous archaeologist David Hurst Thomas, it's not what you find, it's what you find out. And of course, we're not just interested in the material culture that people used at a particular time in the past, but also the environment and that surrounded them and how they adapted and moved about in it and climates, climates, a huge part of that. I'd have to say that historians and archaeologists, to some extent, have treated um, climate and also pandemics, quite honestly, as backdrops to this kind of larger human narrative where humankind takes the center stage and it's it's that's the primary driver of cultural history and change and i think classical historians and archaeologists really get caught up in that because they have this written record to work with that sort of distracts them from really thinking about climate um, in a way that might help understand the historical situation a little better i think that's changing but i think that's a, that's a you know a situation that has probably led to some of the climate denialism and so on that we have a climate change denialism for archaeologists particularly archaeologists working in the west where we don't have a lot of material culture to work with. We don't have a lot of ways to think and look into adaptations in the same way you might in settled villages where there's more archeological evidence, there's more things to work with. It's a little, it's a little harder to tease out um, what they were doing, why they were doing it. And we strongly reference climate as, as a driver. And to some extent, it's absolutely because climate was a driver, but I think it's also because maybe we don't have as much distraction and the records that historians and other people have. I think that um, in the Southwest, you know, we know 
wonderfully about how climate has been a driver because the droughts and so on can be picked up in the tree rings that have been that from um, the Pueblo ruins that people have been able to date and so on. But it's much hard to tease that out when you're working on a hunter and gather camp in uh, Rosebud County or wherever. I think that archeologists um, have a significant role to play in the current dialogue about climate change because of what I just talked about. We deal with it, we think about it. I think that people like um, Jared Diamond and Brian Fagan have talked eloquently about the correlation between Maya's collapse and climate or the significant changes in the American Southwest because of climate. But I think more of us have to start engaging in that dialogue and just not to leave it to those really wonderful spokespersons for our discipline. And that means we need to talk about climate change. If you're a government archeologist like I was at the table when we are talking about EISs that talk about adaptation to climate change. I was in the regional office in my waning years, and I heard about this climate change group that was writing about climate change adaptation. And they had a sociologist at the table, but they didn't have an archeologist or anthropologist. Mm. So I barged my way in and said, wait a minute, we have a lot to offer here. And I'd like to see more of that because I think people still don't quite get that there's a human story that's absolutely behind climate change in every way. I think the human story gets treated as kind of quaint and interesting, but maybe not relevant. So somehow we're failing to do, I think, our job as anthropologists and archaeologists in the public sector. Kind of giving a speech here, but I think it's really important stuff. Yeah. Last thing I'll say about it is, you know, one of the ways that we can do that is to help people understand the difference between natural climate change and human caused climate exactly. change. Yes. Yep. And I think that people need to know that during the Pleistocene, there were significant periods of climate change that we evolved um, with. But during that entirety of time, global carbon emissions were about 281 to 287 parts per million. So even with the rise and fall of civilizations, some of which intensively cultivated the ground, intensively deforested, deforested um, you know, parts of Northern Europe, we don't see a significant blip in carbon emissions. We do see that at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and, the, and where part per million now jump, jump up to what, 410 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And so we know this from ice cores and from sea sediment cores, and it's a very sophisticated analysis. And archeologists use those sediment cores and that data to help interpret the past. So I think we need to bring that forward and take that information to different places where climate change may be accepted that climate change is happening, but people still are reluctant to attribute it 
to humankind, despite the overwhelming evidence that we can draw on from the past and now the evidence that we can use that looks at the present and the future. So I think archaeologists really need to step up to the plate here. Yeah, lots of evidence there. Yeah, and I think archaeologists are really uniquely positioned to examine that relationship um, between humans and the environment more broadly, more broadly than even just climate. But that does help tease out, as you said, what is human-induced and what is not necessarily. But no matter, changes in climate, changes in the environment both affect humans and are are caused by humans sometimes. It's that two-way relationship. And I think with that deep time, we don't have the same refinement that maybe historians have with text, but we really get a very big view and a lot of data. So you, you need to push your way into more rooms, as do more archaeologists, because I think we really do bring a, a different perspective and, and picture, um, which is going to be crucial going forward. We've seen so many civilizations that between the plowing and the processing and the irrigation have ruined environments that have never recovered. And these are stories that my students find very powerful when they hear about them. Um, So we do have to do a better job. And I think part of it is the kinds of narratives that you're constructing. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to pause again for a station break, and then we'll go to you. Okay. You're listening to The Dirt on the Past with me, Nancy Mahoney, and co-host Crystal Alegria. We are talking with Carl Davis today about his book, 600 Generations, An Archaeological History of Montana. Okay, Carl, we're going to switch directions a little bit here. I know that your work, when you worked with the Forest Service, you were required to consult with tribal nations on all the projects that you did. And I know that you took this very seriously and usually took it a step further to make sure that there was always consultation if needed with tribal elders, with tribal historic preservation officers. In the book, you mentioned the importance of indigenous archaeologists and American Indian students going into archaeology. Can you talk a little bit about this and why it is important for archaeologists to include not only the perspective of tribal elders and tribal historic preservation officers, but also to engage with descendant communities and to encourage Native students to become archaeologists themselves? Yeah, when I started out um, in archaeology as a professional in the mid or really late 1970s, um, very little tribal engagement um, happened. Um, and so descendant communities were not engaged with the Forest Service or for that matter, the BLM, Fish Wildlife Service or whatever, pick your agency, it really doesn't matter. Um, and that was uh, disheartening. Some of us were maybe a little more interested in talking to um, tribal people. Um, when I was in Oregon, um, I was interested in the Warm Springs people, the Tanaino and the Wasco and other folks. But there was really no, they were as surprised that I showed up as I think I was surprised that they really weren't sure how we should consult and what was the legal basis. So you fast forward that, you know, a couple decades later, and by the mid-1990s, we have some laws in place and procedures in place that not only um, request but demand that we talk to tribes in a a meaningful way. 
And, you know, those early years were tough, tough um, discussions, tough dialogue with tribes about how those processes should work. You know, I think there was an idea that um, agencies could merely send letters and say, we're going to do project X, Y, or Z. We need your input. If we don't hear back from you, uh, we're going to move ahead. And of course, that's, that's not dialogue by any stretch of the imagination. So thankfully now, um, agency archeologists are much more attuned to getting in the pickup truck and driving to Browning or wherever you need to go uh, to Pablo to talk to tribal people, to work, to bring them out to sites and projects. And I would say my job in the regional office, by the time I left, my job was probably 75% tribal consultations or helping in tribal consultations of some of some type, which really should have always been the natural evolution of things because it really is their um, ancestral history that archaeologists are poking around in. The other trend besides agencies becoming a little more aware, and I think the public having a little different um, historic preservation ethic as far as going out pot hunting and digging up stuff, and again, some of that was uh, stopped because of federal laws that were also passed in the late 1970s. But equally important is that tribal governments developed their own historic preservation programs that were uh, went beyond cultural committees of elders, but actually include a trained staff. And you can go to any tribal program now in Montana and their staff includes native peoples, often with master's degrees, some with PhDs. And I think that trend is wonderful and it should continue. Um, I think that, you know, that's still very much a work in progress. There is still some antagonism, uh, distrust uh, between certain tribal peoples and archeologists and anthropologists. And I don't expect that to go away anytime soon, but I think as long as we keep talking and developing projects together, I think, you know, probably when I'm long gone by then, maybe things will be smoother sailing than when I certainly started out or even now. And of course, it's their, it's their history, it's their culture that we're talking about, describing, trying to interpret for the public. And that's a, that's a, enormous responsibility, uh, one that they didn't ask us to take on, but we took on as uh, Euro-Americans. And so I think that now is the time to ask those folks to help or to start rewriting the history the way that they think it would should be written. And I think if collaboration between archaeologists and tribes can truly happen, then I think we're finally moving this um, this whole train down the tracks a little further. You know, one example that I use, and it comes from Aaron Bren with the Crow Tribe, and he's a professor instructor at Salish Kootenai College. I suspect you guys heard this same talk at the MAS meetings, but he talked about Crow vision quests, and you know, archaeologists would look at these low U-shaped stone formations where native peoples would 
go to seek a vision unusually at some prominent peak or some high point that could look out over the landscape. And they would um, secure a vision, get the guidance from a, a spiritual helper that would help them through their life. Well, archaeologists have recorded these things, say, in southeastern Montana, where I worked for a long time. We've recorded hundreds of these things, and we've dutifully measured them and looked at the angle and the orientation. And Well, they all must point to the east. You know, but the truth of the matter is, as Aaron said, is these cairns, these low fasting beds, are directed or oriented towards places of mythological beings, sacred sites, and they're deliberately looking at places that no Anglo archaeologist would know about. And so, you know, while the hard science is interesting and it's nice to know how big they are and all of that stuff, really the only meaningful interpretation of that can come from a tribal person that knows this stuff. So that's a really minor example of how important engaging tribes in our work and in their work so that they can um, give the public and all of us a much broader perspective than we have now. And, you know, they're not particularly willing to do that because of this long history of colonialism. And so I think we have to be very careful in what we expect of tribal people, how much they're willing to grow disclose what are the terms of engagement and so on. But if we do that, particularly with leaders like Aaron and other tribal people, uh, John Murray, people that are kind of leading the way, I think we'll have a much richer archaeological narrative than we have now. It would, will, it would change my book dramatically if I had co-authored that with a multitude of tribal people. I did take time to have every tribe that was engaged in some part of those narratives. I asked tribal people to at least review the chapters and the book, and I got some wonderful feedback and criticisms. You know, but that's really a baby step towards what we really need to do, which is to be co-authoring or encouraging the authoring of books by Native American students whose history, you know, is is really important to them, and it's interesting to all of us. Yeah, the future of archaeology, hopefully, is more towards these kinds of collaborations from the outset. It's it's. I love the story about Aaron Bryn because this idea that we can discover through science what these U-shaped cairns are, rather than asking people who. Mm-hmm have a whole cultural layer of meaning that that gives all the importance to what it is we're, we're trying to understand. And I feel like anthropology has come full circle from moving away from that direct historical rep- approach and then now finally coming back around, but in a way that's hopefully somewhat decolonized and we have a ways to go. But um, I loved your answer on that, Carl. Um, so I wonder if you could... For our listeners out there who are interested in archaeology, uh, name maybe a handful of sites that they might be able to to visit or go see or engage with, something that would be accessible um, and interesting and, and why you would select those. You know, there are a 
relatively few number of sites that you can actually go visit in a sort of an interpretive context. Um, Montana State Parks is the primary or, uh, protector and purveyor of access to those sites. So Pictograph Cave near Billings would be a wonderful place to start. Um, of course, First Peoples Buffalo Jump has a wonderful interpretive um, display and center. The Madison Buffalo Jump um, doesn't have a visitor center, but certainly it has interpretive trails and so on. Um, you know, those are a couple. Wapachugan, which is near Haver, well, right within Haver, right in has Haver, its own, yeah. you know, interpretive center. So those are a few places that you can go see that actually have facilities associated with them with guided, some kind of guided information, if not interpreters and so on. And I'm probably overlooking a few more. There are also any number of interpretive signs that are out there scattered about the landscape that have been developed by the BLM, uh, Project Archaeology, um, Forest Service, and so on. And um, for example, on the Rocky Mountain front, um, and I'm going to forget the name of the canyon, but there's a wonderful little pictograph site that uh, you can drive by and there's an interpretive sign. Um, so. You know, I think we have a long ways to go to getting more information out to folks. It's not like the Southwest, sadly, where, you know, heritage tourism has been an important part of, of their economy and their heritage for a long time. You know, Montana has traditionally focused on Western expansion and settlement history and not so much Native American history, but uh, that's changing. And I'm gonna make one pitch you know, for outside of uh, boundaries, country boundaries is WAP, uh, is head smashed in, which is a remarkable bison kill interpretive center. Uh, uh, we're going Canadian here. Canadian. Okay, crossing the border. Of course, there was no border, so uh, yeah, we know right, that right. back then. Can and you, you describe can't go the there site? now, so I don't know why I'm oh, saying that. Oh, I know. But when we can, when, when we can okay. again, what, what would um, people see if they went to uh, head smashed in? Well, it's a world-class interpretive facility, and you will learn more about Plains Indians at that particular site and bison jumping, economy and subsistence and religious practices than you will learn any place else, um, I think, on the Northern Plains or Northwestern Plains. And they also are guided by um, Blackfeet interpreters. Oh, of all age groups. So, you know, you are actually immersed in a cultural experience. And uh, it's really a wonderful, a wonderful place to go see. And I hope at some point, I think they're working hard at Pictograph Cave and at First Peoples to do more of those kinds of things. First Peoples does have Native peoples that are very involved in their, in their programs. But we're not anywhere close to uh, what they do at the Head Smashed In. And it's a different kind of site since it's got a uh, much deeper history or prehistory than maybe First Peoples. But those are a couple of places. I'm sure there's many more that I could list, but my brain can't work that fast. 
Crystal, have you been to Head Smash Den? Um, I have never been. It's on my bucket list for sure, but I haven't been there. Have you, Nancy? I have not. And um, now after hearing Carl road talk trip. about it, I, yes, <laughs> definitely a road trip. Maybe we'll scoop up Carl from Missoula along the yeah. way. I, I loved Wapachugan just because I felt like that was a place I could take students. And you see this amazing stratigraphy of these different bison kills over uh, thousands of years and it's almost it is an architectural feel because it's so deep and they've left those trenches open and preserve them in such a way that you can then see the depth and and places where they're processing bones it's phenomenal and it's very strangely located behind a mall in Haver but that shouldn't <laughs> let anybody scare them away because you think this can't be right but then but you go is, down yeah. this amazing pathway now they even have um golf carts that'll drive you down instead of just walking down all these steps and you're along the milk river i believe there and it's it's a phenomenal place but it sounds like head smashed and should be our next road trip once we can cross the border yes yes we'll pick you up along the way carl (laughs) so so carl what are you doing now are you still active in the field of archaeology and history historic preservation are you are you really retired retired i i don't believe you are but (laughs) and if you're still active what are you doing are you writing another book you know, there's no book on the horizon. I'm mm. involved with several different articles. I've been involved in a couple of rock art projects on and within the Blackfeet Reservation and a couple of publications there. And I'm on several different boards, uh, the Montana Preservation Alliance, now called Preserve Montana, newly named. And we'll be doing a road show again whenever COVID allows. Oh, good. So, oh, good. Uh, you know, I would love to go do a little more traveling to see archaeological sites, but um, that's really not possible outside of the United States right now. So I suppose, you know, um, archaeologists, most archaeologists never quite give up the game uh, until they give up the game. And right. I'll probably Buried with your trowel, right? That's how we all go down eventually. Exactly. (laughs) So, Carl, um, are there any questions in Montana archaeology that you think uh, or that you would love to see answered or focused on or that are just outstanding there right now that you can think of? Yeah, you know, I think that um, for too long we've been focused on the Plains prehistory as kind of our interpretive template plains. And I think that in Montana, we really haven't come to grips with the influence of the Northern Great Basin or the Southern Columbia Plateau. And I think that our archaeological materials from southwestern Montana were talking about um, Plains Indian societies when we might be more fruitfully talking about Great Basin's people that have traveled over many low passes from northern Idaho into southwestern Montana and back out. So I think that we need to do kind of a paradigm switch a little bit and kind of open our minds that, you know, this was a pretty dynamic place to live and to be over both time and space and to always kind of look at things in the eyes of the late great George Frizen and Plains archaeologists. I think that we're probably missing some really, really cool things. I'd like to see more work done in Western Montana besides that early work. Well, 
not so early, but 1980s work on the Kootenai River, which was, of course, facilitated by dam proposals. So that had its own kind of sordid history. Because I think that we don't really understand how complex, say, the archaeology of Flathead Lake might really be, you know, and that those were bigger relationships to Coeur d'Alene and the region's points to the west. The difficulty is always um, working with um, agencies and tribes to ensure that people are really comfortable with those kinds of explorations and what the intentions are and so on. I would like to see more work done for the sake of knowledge and not always done at the heels of projects. But I realize that's what funds this work. It sort of gives us its reason for being is that we have to go dig up something because we have to save something. And I like when you can do archaeological research just as a way to do good, you know, inquiry into the distant past. I'm, I'm really thrilled that I think that there is more collaboration and tribes. Uh, Dr. Maria Zedeno, who works with the Blackfeet Nation, has done some terrific work with bison kills and jumps. And that's the kind of, you know, it's not being pushed because there's a pipeline going there. It's because the tribal government and the tribal TIPO is interested in that knowledge and the academic community and the general audience, the general public is interested. Yeah, so that's that's the ideal. That's truly when the best work is done. Yeah. Thank you for that perspective. And thanks so much, Carl, for joining us today. And it was been wonderful talking about your book, 600 Generations, an Archaeological History of Montana. I hope everyone is able to get their hands on the book. I know it's widely available around Montana. And it'll allow them to dive deep into Montana archaeology. Just skip that methods chapter, chapter three, if you don't want to know that stuff. That's my advice, not for everyone. I know that from teaching. Sometimes we go fast through that period. So thanks for listening and joining us today. And until next time, keep searching out the The dirt dirt on the past. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past.